From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing his mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. Stories and conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast, conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. I'm your host, Paul Aiken, and I'm excited in this podcast to highlight the amazing stories and work that God is doing around the world. In this episode, we will hear some of the things that God is doing in East Africa. Our guest today is John Musimi. Pastor John and his family live and serve in one of the most beautiful places on the planet, Nairobi, Kenya. My family and I had the privilege of living in Nairobi for a season of time, and Kenya will always be a special place to us. A little over a year ago, I met John at a meeting that I was attending in Africa. I heard him preach from 2 Timothy 2, and I'm grateful for his work and ministry in East Africa and I'm excited for you to hear from him today. John Musimi serves as a pastor on staff at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Nairobi. He regularly writes and contributes to the Gospel Coalition Africa and is the author of the recently released book, A Counterfeit Gospel. John Karibusana, welcome to the podcast. Asante sana, Paul. That's Swahili for thank you. I'm happy to join you for this podcast. I hope we'll have a good conversation here today. Amen. John, please tell us briefly about you and your family. All right. So you mentioned that I'm a pastor at a church in Nairobi called Emmanuel Baptist Church. I actually recently became a pastor there. The congregation voted to call me as one of their pastors. Three weeks ago, I was installed as a pastor this past Sunday. So I'm very fresh in terms of serving as a pastor at this church. I am a father of four children, four young kids. My oldest is five years old. His name is Taji. My youngest is two years old. His name is Tando. And right between them are twin girls called Tia and Tammy. So all my kids' names start with the letter T. Because I'm a Baptist preacher, we alliterate our sermon points. I also alliterated my kids', my kids names. I am widowed. I've been widowed now for seven months after being married for seven years. So on the 19th of February this year, I lost my wife to tuberculosis. And so I am currently in a season of suffering, loss, and, and grief. But the Lord has been very faithful in uh, using our local church and many other means of grace to sustain me and to encourage me during this season. Thank you for, for sharing that, John. We appreciate that. One of the things that I know I'm always curious about is how people came to faith in Christ, their testimony, how God saved them from their sins. And so I, I would love for you to share a little bit with our listeners just how you came to faith in Christ. So I grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition. My mom is a staunch Roman Catholic. My dad is not a Christian at all. My mom basically made me attend a Roman Catholic church and go through the processes of catechism, and then I was received to the Eucharist, and then I went through some other classes, and then I was confirmed. So in many ways, I was actually on the path towards becoming an altar boy, maybe even a priest. But in the year 2000, uh, my parents moved houses, 
my dad was in the middle of a building project. He was building his own house and paying rent at another house. He had to send my my older sister, Jackie, to high school. He paid her school fees. He ran out of money. He said, all right, I'm not paying rent and building a house. So we are moving into an incomplete house. So that's what we did, which is fairly common in, in Nairobi. So we moved into the, the incomplete house and the construction was going on whilst we were living in that house. So we didn't have any power in that house. So the only thing we could do to entertain ourselves at least for me, was to listen to a small transistor radio that was battery-powered. And it is one night in the year 2000 listening to that transistor radio that I had a preacher, fiery preacher of the gospel, preaching in Swahili. He declared the glory of God, the holiness of God, sin, the salvation that Christ brought on the cross. He called people to faith. And that night I was convicted of sin. And I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart. That would have been the year 2000. I was 13 years old at the time. Praise God for his saving Amen. grace in your life. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about the people, the culture. What makes your part of the world unique? Well, so I, I live in Nairobi, Kenya. have done so all my life, basically. The thing about the people in Kenya, the people in Nairobi is that they are generally friendly. We have what you might call a polite and a hospitable culture. People here tend to be very hardworking. And on the other hand, they tend to be quite religious. There's a very pronounced sense of community here. So it's not uncommon. One of the funny things about Kenyans is that all of us are in WhatsApp groups. I was in the US some time ago and I realized most Americans either don't know what WhatsApp is or don't use it much. It's very common for a Kenyan to be in like six or seven different WhatsApp groups for various things. So that's just part of how the community life plays itself out, even in a digital age. That's great. What is the state of the church in East Africa, in Kenya? We read that there's lots of Christians, lots of churches, but what can you tell us about the state of the church there? Yeah, so so Kenya is considered to be a Christian country, quote unquote. And what that means is that we are culturally and nominally majority Christian. People identify as Christian. And what they mean by that is that they are not Muslim and they are not atheist or they are not Hindu. The percentage of people who would call themselves Christians by that definition is like 80% or slightly higher of the people of Kenya. So that's the cultural milieu of Kenya. It's, It's a cultural Christianity. Broadly speaking, the church here is very much alive and well. The gospel is being preached here. People are being saved here. The church is thriving in very many ways. If you, if you just move around on a Sunday morning, it's, it's not uncommon to run into several churches that are full with people singing and praising the Lord. The most common expression of worship here is the Pentecostal slash charismatic mode of worship. And that cuts across even denominations. So you can go to a Presbyterian church and go to an Anglican church and go to an undenominational church. You will find that the Pentecostal charismatic mode of worship is very common. There are challenges in the church here. One is that prosperity gospel is quite prevalent. There are quite a number of pastors who serve with very little training, especially in the outskirts, not in the urban areas. There is what I call a gospel vacuum in some pulpits, in some churches. 
and pragmatism as a philosophy of ministry is quite common. However, generally speaking, even with all those challenges, it's actually quite vibrant here. It's funny that you mentioned the cultural Christianity. Obviously, we have that here in North America as well. But one of the things that I remember when we lived in Kenya, I would often get into a taxi and try to have gospel conversation with the taxi driver. And and I would talk with them. And as we were talking about religious things, they would always say very often, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. It was always funny for me to hear them use that language. Yes, I'm a Christian, but but I'm not born again. And, and I learned that what they meant was culturally, yeah, I see myself as a Christian, but I'm not a committed or a devoted Christian in that sense. Yeah. And that presents interesting challenges when you're trying to evangelize people like that, because you almost have to cast a new vision of what it means to be a Christian. And yet it presents opportunities because you're talking to somebody who has the categories in place for understanding God, sin, Jesus, etc. So you have to tell them, well, what it means to be a Christian is this, but they also have sort of the hanging line of a worldview that makes it easier for you to evangelize them. So, yeah. John, you recently wrote a book titled A Counterfeit Gospel. Tell us a little bit about that book and why you wrote that book. So the book, A Counterfeit Gospel, was actually first, I I wrote it in in the year 2016 and uh, sort of self-published it through, with the help of a church I was working at at that time. And then I recently revised and republished it through the Ministry of Ecclesia Africa. So I wrote the book to respond to the challenge of the prosperity gospel in Africa. As I mentioned earlier, one of the main theological problems that is facing the church in Africa is the prevalence of the prosperity gospel, prosperity theology, word of faith theology, health and wealth gospel, and various African expressions of that. And so I wanted to use the book to help people to come out of the prosperity gospel and also to equip Christians who are concerned and have friends and loved ones who are in prosperity gospel preaching churches to have winsome conversations with them and to help them come out. So it's really a book about the prosperity gospel. When I became a Christian in the year 2000, I left the Roman Catholic Church because God just changed my heart and my desires at my conversion. But because I didn't know any better, I joined a charismatic church that was also laced with prosperity gospel and word of faith theology. And so for the first 11 years of my faith, I was genuinely converted, but I was brought up believing that word of faith theology and prosperity gospel was Christianity. I wrote the book to try and help people who are caught up to keep people not to get caught up in it. That's very good. You've spent some time, I know, both in Africa, but recently you've spent some time in America as well. Tell us your perspective on on Christianity, on the church in both of those places. So let me start with Kenya. In Kenya, like we've sort of highlighted in our conversation here, it's more culturally acceptable for a person to be a Christian in Kenya. It's much easier because of the, just the cultural accommodation that is availed to you as a Christian. It's fairly uncommon to meet somebody in Kenya who doesn't have a sort of a background understanding of the ideas of God or sin or who hasn't heard of Jesus. It's very uncommon. Usually when we evangelize in Kenya, you talk to somebody and before you get five sentences in, 
they tell you, no, 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 I, I'm a Christian. In fact, I'm a pastor. Or, you know, I lead music in my church. So it's very common to have that kind of experience. In the U.S., this was my impression, that there is more and more of a price that Christians in the U.S. pay for embodying and articulating their Christian beliefs. And I feel like this is especially true on the, on the hot button cultural issues like abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism, etc. So I think it's harder in some cases to be a Christian in certain parts of the U.S. than it is in, in Kenya. Although I'm told that in the Bible Belt South, there might be more of a similarity with, with Kenya, that cultural Christianity, that politeness and a sort of a cultural accommodation to, to the, the Christian message. But that was one of the main points of distinction that I noted. That's good. You know, one of the things we've highlighted as you talk about the prosperity gospel and some of the other things that are going on there in Africa, but really that are going on all over the world. We know it's prevalent in the United States, it's prevalent in South America and parts of Asia as well. When you think about your work there in Nairobi, in Kenya, what would you say is your single biggest challenge in your work? Yeah, so being a pastor, having that persona of a pastor, I think my biggest challenge is ensuring that my private life and my public ministry are not incongruent, ensuring that what I am in private and what I am in public is the same thing, is the same man, ensuring that I'm not doing public ministry and my soul is shriveled up or I am entertaining private and secret scene. I am not actually walking with the Lord I don't have meaningful times of devotion with the Lord. I'm not reading my Bible. I'm not in prayer. So that I'm proclaiming realities that I'm not partaking in. So I think that's a, that's a constant challenge and trying to ensure that I'm constantly nurturing my own soul, my spiritual life, so that there isn't a, a distinction or an incongruence between my private life and my, and my public ministry. Amen. That's good. Yeah. We all, I think we all need that reminder. As ministers of the gospel, we know that sin is prevalent, and so we know that we're constantly having to work in the power of the Spirit to put sin to death. Okay, here's a question I ask everyone that I interview. Day after day, week after week, and month after month, what keeps you there in that place, and why are you giving your life to this work? This is a really good question that you've asked me, because I've been thinking recently I've been doing membership interviews for people who are interested in joining our church. When we do membership interviews, we ask three questions. One, tell me your testimony of conversion. Two, tell me how your life has changed since you became a Christian. And three, articulate the gospel for me, like in 90 seconds. And it's just so thrilling for me to hear people talk about how Christ saved them, how their lives have been changed by the gospel. And just to hear people articulating the message of the gospel, talking about God is holy and man has fallen into sin and man is in danger of God's wrath, but God has given his son to to rescue us from sin and to reconcile us to himself. And, and we respond in faith to that message and repent from our sins. So there's something that just thrills my heart when I see that, when I hear that, being part of this work that ensures that more and more people like that are created, that just keeps me going. Amen. Amen. What is your constant prayer for the Kenyan people and the city of Nairobi? 
Yeah, so generally for the for the Kenyan people, I pray that that the gospel, the message of the gospel would seep so deep into their minds and their hearts that it would totally transform their whole outlook and their whole life. And one of the evidences that I pray to see as one of the things that is happening is the the minimization of tendency to corruption and tribalism. Those are the two biggest issues of concern nationally, corruption and tribalism. There's a lot of theft of public resources and there's a lot of receding back to tribal cocoons when it comes to how we elect our political leaders, regardless of whether they're qualified or not. There's just a, a deep sense of, of tribalism that plagues our country. And so I constantly pray that as the gospel goes forth, that it would cause visible transformation in these areas, that more people would be transformed and that we would see a change even in the culture because of it. That's good. Can you maybe speak a little bit more on on tribalism? We lived in Kenya, so I, I'm I'm a little bit aware of, of some of what you're talking about. We moved there in 2008, and it was maybe a year before we moved there that there was lots of violence and rioting over one of the elections and some of the things yeah. that happened took place there. But maybe for some of our listeners who are not as familiar with Africa, mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit more, explain a little bit more what you mean by tribalism and how that's yeah. played out in Kenya? Yeah, so the people of Kenya come from, um, and counting, 44 different tribes, and still counting, they still discover some new tribes every so often, but people come from 44 different tribes. There are five of those that are predominant, they have the largest populations, and what happens is that there tends to be tensions and conflicts that exist between these tribes. The place in which the tension is the most is usually in our politics. So here's another difference that I noted between American politics and Kenyan politics. So in American politics, there seems to be an ideological divide between the right and the left. It's ideological. So you can have two white people who are on the right and the left or two black people on the right and the left. In Kenya, there isn't really an ideological divide between politicians what there is is a tribal divide. So the politician who comes from the tribe with the most people has a better chance of succeeding. And the politician who forms a coalition with another politician from another tribe so that the two of them come from two tribes that have a lot of people have a better chance of succeeding in their politics. And so in 2007, there was a conflict that happened between the two main tribes in the country, which happened at that time to be on opposing political sides. And one of the tribes felt that the election was stolen from their man, the man from their tribe who was running. And so there's just an explosion of violence that happened. And a thousand people died and a lot more were displaced from their homes. Sometimes the tribal issues also find their way into people's personal lives. And so a person from a particular tribe may find that their parents have a problem with them seeking to marry a girl or if it's a girl seeking to marry a guy from another tribe just because of those animosities. That sense of they're different from us, their culture is different from ours, it's weird, we don't associate with them. So that's a very deep problem in our culture. So there's beauty in our diversity, but there's also this ugliness of hatred and bitterness and suspicion that also is an undercurrent 
I hope that makes sense. Yeah, John, that's really helpful. I would ask, do you feel like you've seen some changes in in tribalism? I know like in America, it's pretty common for people to kind of see themselves maybe as an American first, and then maybe they would identify with their local state or something like that. But in Kenya, it seems that maybe people identify with their tribe first, Mm -hmm. and maybe Mm -hmm. Kenya as a country second. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any changes in that maybe over the last decade or two? in terms of how people view themselves and if there is more kind of a a nationalistic understanding or is it still very much tribal? So when it's an election year, it becomes very tribal. The rest of the time when political emotions are not high, people will tend to sort of remember that they are other things. Kenyans, Kenyans tend to coalesce around national heroes. For example, our athletes, when they go and run some marathon and win, all of a sudden we, we forget our tribal issues. And in that instant, we all become Kenyans and our national pride rises. And we, we are very loud on Twitter, for example, praising and celebrating those figures. But when it comes to politics and it's an election year, we fragment back into our tribes. So that's second part of your question. First part of your question, I think the change is mostly generational. The generation of my parents there isn't much change in them as far as the tribal identities are concerned. But myself and my kids, there is some change there. But then again, there are distinctions to be made between those of us who live in urban areas and those who are growing up in rural parts of the country. So it is likely that my children will grow up not with any tribal notion because their late mom and myself came from two different tribes and they, they don't know any of the local languages. They speak English. So it's very likely for my kids to grow up with more of a sense of their Kenyans first. And they won't have any deep sense of being committed to any tribe. So there is a generational change that is happening. But that's more clear in urban areas and less so in rural areas. Because in rural areas, that tribal identity keeps being passed down. That milk keeps being passed down from one generation to another. So so we'll see how, how things go. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing. This is last question for uh-huh. you. And this is, again, uh-huh. some, something I ask everyone who I interview. Mm-hmm. What is one thing that you want everyone listening to this podcast to know? Mm-hmm. That Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth all the trouble. He's worth all the persecution, all the suffering, He is more than worth it. That passage in Romans 12 that talks about offering up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord in view of his mercy. So as a response to his grace and his mercy that has been displayed so magnificently and magnanimously in the gospel, as a response to that rich display of God's mercy and grace, Offer up yourself, offer up your bodies, your whole being as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And one of the versions says, this is your reasonable service. I like that. It's reasonable for you to offer up everything that you are for Christ. He is absolutely worth, he is worth it. He's worth you giving up your life for his sake. That's what I want everyone to know. Amen. Amen. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Pastor John today. As the Lord brings him to your mind, please pray for him. 
pray for his his children, for his church, for the work that he is doing there in Africa. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. More encouraging conversations are on the way. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu slash BGS, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.